We're continuing our series. Uh, this summer we have two more to go on controversial topics that people at Woodland Hills wanted to have discussed. And this summer has really been fun and it's really been a challenge. We've talked about everything from demons to tongues to masturbation and it's been a really interesting summer. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting back to the predictability of having a book to preach out of. Uh, this is starting to wear me thin, especially these last two weeks. Today we're going to talk about, this is, you guys wanted it, uh, male headship in the home. <clears throat> and then next week we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. And then we'll get back to the book of Ephesians. We had hell in there. We're going to talk about hell. Um, but uh, we expanded the sex topic, and so that was the one to drop off. We'll get to hell later on, so, you know. <laughs> we'll preach about hell later on, okay? This morning I want to talk about uh, the role of husbands and wives in a marriage context, and I want to read three verses that I assure you will raise the temperature of this room significantly. The first is found in Ephesians chapter 5. And um, I'm not going to read everything that's printed in the bulletin. Uh, in the interest of time, I, there's a couple other passages I want to read. So I'm going to read part of this. I encourage you who find this verse very difficult to hang in there. Do not at any point in this sermon get up and walk out. Or if you... Yeah, there's people walking out already. <laughs> at least not because you're getting angry. Hang in there. This is a tough, a, a tough couple of passages that I think have been abused a lot and have been misused a lot and have wounded a lot of people when in fact there is, believe it or not, I think some profound beauty to be found here. But you've got to hang in there to get to it. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21. Submit, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because of who Christ is, submit to one another. This is to characterize all Christian relationships. Now, in particular, it's to characterize the husband and wife relationship. Submit to one another. Now, Paul tells us how to do this. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives submit to their husbands in everything. Debbie, are you saying amen yet? Husbands, you love your wives. And it's as though people instinctively read, you don't have to submit, but you love your wives. Uh, Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to, for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives. I also want to read from 1 Peter. This one will really raise the temperature of the room. Hang in there, folks. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Then he talks about the slave-master relationship, coming to verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives, in the same way, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. You know everything I just said about the slaves? You do the same thing. So that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And he goes on to talk about not wearing jewelry and gold and stuff like that as becomes a godly woman. Now one final verse. 
This verse has usually been taken to be sort of the classic verse on what a marriage is supposed to be. It comes out of Genesis chapter 3. We'll just read verse 16. Where the Lord is pronouncing the curse as a result of the fall, he says this to the woman. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will bring, bring, give birth to children. Your desire will be towards your husband, and he will rule over you. Let's pray. Lord, I, I know that right now there's a lot of fast-beating hearts, especially maybe among some of the women, Lord, who have had these verses used over them and maybe abused over them. And there are scars here and tough stuff here. And they don't see anything funny about this. Um, Lord, I pray that this message would be, more than anything else, a healing thing for them. And I pray, Lord, it would be a healing thing for men who have maybe misunderstood what it is to be in this head relationship. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd use this to heal marriages. Be with us, Lord, we pray during this time. Give energy to the words. Give wisdom to the words. Help me to say it balanced and truthfully, we pray. Amen. Okay, I want to talk about these verses here in a, in a second, but I want to start by uh, raising some kind of practical questions. In fact, I want to start by giving a little confession here. When my wife and I first got married, we came from a real strong fundamentalistic church that believed it know, knew about everything about everything, and... and uh, Therefore, we knew everything there was to know about marriage. We thought we knew exactly what it was uh, that the male role and female role was supposed to be. The man was supposed to be the head, and we thought we knew what head meant, what it meant to be the head of a household. It meant that you're the boss. It meant, it meant that your vote counts the most. It means that you have the tie-breaking authority. It means that when push comes to shove, you always win because you are the man. That's what the head of the household is. With being the head of the household comes a certain amount of uh, some, some jobs, some job descriptions. Like you're supposed to be the breadwinner and you're supposed to be, oh, the one who takes care of the finances and makes the big purchases. And the major decisions are, in the end, in your court, the buck stops with you. It took us about three days of being married to begin to wonder about this arrangement. <laughs> Turns out that I'm a financial idiot. <laughs> it's not that I can't add. It's just that I don't, I don't think about, and I'm not saying this... I don't think about money. Ask my sister. I, I, it doesn't, I don't have a file for that. It's not the kind of thing I'm interested in. And, and <clears throat> so you put me in charge of money, and I don't record checks that have been written, and I don't you know, pay any attention to that until I have to, and usually I have to when my wife would tell me I had to. And then I do it as quick as possible. So the result is, as you might suspect, that we were bouncing a whole lot of checks early on in our marriage. And finally, in spite of what we thought was the macho thing to do, I gave up on that and gave it to my wife because my wife is interested in making sure that we don't bounce too many checks. You know, a certain amount is normal, of course, but, but you don't want to do too many. <laughs> and making sure that we don't go into bankruptcy. And she's better at adding than I am. She knows how to push a calculator. I can never figure those things out. Where's the on button? So we gave her that. Well, before too long, it became clear that some of the other stereotypical male things that men of the house are supposed to do, I can't do. I can't fix a light bulb that's not screwed in. I mean, I, 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 find me something that's broken and I'll break it more for you. I can't fix anything. Turns out my wife is really good at fixing stuff. She's got a common sense to her that I can't fathom. And so she, she doesn't like doing it, but if you want to have it get done... You, we found out in our marriage that she's got to do it. Now, it turns out that I can iron pretty good. 
So I do a lot of the ironing. But I, no, people don't believe that, but I iron my own clothes. See these creases here? I did that. Not good at very many other things, but I can wash dishes and mow the lawn. In the end, we ended up having sort of a gift-based partnership, okay? Where we just decided, our marriage seemed to get better the more we retreated from the stereotypical roles. Now, I asked her this last Tuesday. We celebrated our 16th anniversary. And, uh, yes, <laughs> praise God. And, and um, you know, God's really done a, done a great work in this, in this uh, marriage. It, it uh, started off a little rocky, and after 16 years, it's getting there. So, praise God for that. And I asked her, I said, honey, you know, I got to... We're out of this romantic restaurant, you know, and, and I, I asked her, um, honey, I'm thinking about the sermon this Sunday. I said, would you say that you submit to me? Um, she hit me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I sure do. No, and she said, what? I said, well, you know, do you think that you obey me? And she started to chuckle. Like, yeah, right, in your dreams. And there seems to be something healthy about that. Kids, yeah, obey me. Dogs, cats, yeah, obey me. Wife, it didn't feel right. But then what do you do with these verses in the Bible? On the other hand, I know a lot of marriages. I've known a lot of marriages. Most of them are past tense now that I think about it. Where the man of the household wasn't good at doing certain things, like I wasn't good at doing certain things, but for whatever reasons, he didn't want to surrender or the wife didn't want him to surrender it. I've known one relationship, in fact, I've known more than one relationship, but I'm thinking of one in particular now, and you don't know these people, so don't try to know these people. But this guy didn't have an ounce of common sense, not an ounce. Couldn't make a financial decision of his life dependent on it. Had a real craving for get-rich-quick schemes. Poured his money into a lot of foolish, foolish things. Was married to a, a woman who had a lot of common sense and a lot of financial wisdom, but the... He drove this family into financial bankruptcy, finally blew the whole thing apart because he kept on making stupid, stupid decisions and she kept on letting him do it because he was, after all, the head of the house. The only reason they didn't hit the bottom of the road sooner, they actually had a house and a car in spite of him, is because on a couple of occasions, but only on a couple of occasions, she said, to heck with what she thought was what the Bible was saying. We're not going to do what you say we're going to do. We're not going to go out to California and invest in this marketing thing because we're going to stay here and buy this house. And she put her foot down. In those rare instances, things actually went right. But she didn't do it much. And he raged when she did do it, and the thing finally blew apart. I know of relationships where the woman, in the name of being the head of the house, the woman has to give a daily account of where she's been because it just so happens that this boss, this head, this spiritual authority is hyper-paranoid about his wife, so she has to, like some kind of dog on a leash, give a moment-by-moment -moment account of where she's been that day. There's others that I've known about where the man thinks nothing about going out and buying a car or $400 worth of golf clubs or what have you without asking anything from his wife or getting her input, but if she buys a pair of shoes, well, then you just better watch out because things are going to be flying. Is there something ungodly about that? Or maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just some liberal feminist or something in the 20th century. But it just seems to me that there's something wrong about that. Something has been misinterpreted or abused here. I want to talk about these verses. I want to talk about two things here in Ephesians chapter 5, all right? What does Paul mean when he says, submit to one another? And then secondly, what does Paul mean when he says, after he says, submit to one another, he tells them that the man is the head of the house. What's going on there? The word submit, hupotasso, 
means literally hypo to stand underneath or to come underneath another person. The best translation of it is subservient, sub-under, servient, serve. Subservient means to serve under. Paul says, regarding all relationships, but in particular marriage relationships, submit, be subservient to one another. Now we have got to hear how radical this is in the first century. We've talked about this a little bit before, but just to remind ourselves. In the first century... Women were regarded as being about a centimeter above slaves. They were regarded as being semi-slaves or quasi-slaves. There was exceptions to that. But as a general rule of thumb, especially in Jewish culture, they were regarded as being property. They were owned. They had to be owned. They were owned by a man. Either their father owned them before they were married or their father gave them away, literally, and usually had to pay, you had to buy her. That practice is still carried on in some quarters. You had to buy the wife from the man, okay? You have to transfer ownership to the husband. Now the husband owns her. And if she doesn't belong to a father or to a husband, well then guys will own her one at a time because in the ancient world, the only alternative was prostitution. She wasn't allowed to have any of her own thoughts on things. If the man of the household decided to believe a certain religion, she, by legal law, had to believe what he believed. That's why you have in the book of Acts, one guy becomes a Christian, well, the whole house becomes a Christian because the man of the house decides what everyone's going to believe. She didn't have any rights whatsoever. A woman couldn't decide whether her baby was going to live or die. That belonged to the man. The man decided that. When the baby came out, he went thumbs up or thumbs down. And they had that right in the Roman ancient world to decide who was going to live or die. The mother didn't have any say. It didn't count because she was property. Paul comes along and he says, Husbands and wives, come under one another. Be subservient to one another. This is so, so countercultural and radical. In the light of the slavery of wives in the ancient world, it's easy to understand why Peter would say in 1 Peter, just as you slaves submit to your masters, so also women submit to your husbands. Because to be a wife in the ancient world was pretty much equivalent to being a slave. They, 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 there's a parallel there. And what, what Peter's getting at is this. If you want to reach your unsaved master, or if you want to reach your unsaved husband, well then be a good slave and be a good wife. And what that means in the ancient world is submit yourself to them. Show forth godly submission to them, even when they're harsh with you. That's what it means in the ancient world. He's not endorsing slavery, and I don't think he's endorsing wife slavery, but he is saying the principle here is this. If you want to win your unsaved husband or unsaved master in the first century, do whatever it takes, which in that case is going to mean submitting to them. But here Paul is doing something very different. Here Paul holds up what is an ideal for marriage. This is not an accommodation to the culture. Here Paul begins to regain the beauty of Genesis chapter 2. When the Lord made the woman out of the man and he says, this is bone of my very bone and flesh of my very flesh. And the Bible says that she was, a, the Hebrew word is a, 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 an appropriate helper there. And the word helper is the word that's used of God in relationship to Israel. God was Israel's helper. It doesn't denote some kind of subservient. It means a support. It means a, a comrade. There's a beauty there that the ideal for marriage in God's created order was to have a husband and wife who, who respect one another. There's a mutuality there, a self-surrender there, a giving, a deferring to one another. And that deferring, that love, reflects the very Godhead because we're made in the image of God. 
What doesn't reflect God's ideal is Genesis 3.16. Now, this is very important. Hang with me on this. After the fall, the Lord says this to the woman. Your desire will be towards the husband, but the husband will rule over you. And by and large, for two centuries, people have taken that to be the ideal for marriage. Well, God says, I'm supposed to rule over you, and you're supposed to desire me. And the... And the traditional interpretation is that the woman's supposed to sexually desire the man and desire to serve the man, and the man's supposed to, by very nature, rule over the woman. Sounds kind of like a dog relationship, but that's how it's been traditionally interpreted. What you've got to know here is this. And I'm not the only one saying this. This has been around for a while, but very few people have listened to it. In the original Hebrew, this is not given as a command of God. It is given as a declaration of God. It's not in the imperative mode. It's in the indicative mode. And what that means, hang with me, is that God is not saying this is what ought to be the case. God is saying this is what's going to be the case. And they're two very different things. The word seek in the Hebrew means to manipulate. It's used in the next chapter when the Lord says to Abel, sin is seeking at the door, seeking to control you. The word there means to manipulate. The word rule in this passage means to tyrannize, to dictate. And so what the Lord is saying here is this. Because of the fall, because of this, because humanity is now turned from God and in this fallen, rebellious state, what was to be this beautiful relationship among equals, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, becoming one flesh, what was to be... A partnership that reflects the very Trinity has now become a power struggle, a state of war, where she, the wife's going to be continually seeking to manipulate the husband, and the husband's going to be seeking to tyrannize over the woman, and the husband, because of superior strength on the whole, is going to win. And this is not the way God wants it, but this is the way it's going to be. And historically speaking, it's what has been the case, which is why every, almost every culture in, 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 since the fall... That is to say, almost every culture has been male-dominated. It's been patriarchal. God's, it was a prophecy that God's given here. But it's not God's ideal. God works with it because in a fallen world, you've got to work with reality. And the reality is that marriages are going to be struggling. struggling. So he tries to Christianize that. That's what you find in 1 Peter chapter 3. But it's not God's ideal. God puts up with polygamy, but it's not God's ideal. God puts up with divorce, but it's not God's ideal. God even puts up with concubines in the Old Testament, but it's not God's ideal. It's important that we keep before us the difference between what's the real and what is the ideal. And the ideal that we're to strive for from Genesis chapter 2 and from Hebrew, from Ephesians chapter 5, is this mutual submission to one another. Submit yourself to one another. Come underneath one another. Become subservient to one another. Now Paul says this. He goes on to say how wives and husbands are to submit to one another. Okay, you got that. Okay, we're supposed to come under one another. That's, that's the given. And now he tells us how we're to do it. He says, wives, you come under your husband like the church comes under Christ. Husbands, you come under your wives like Christ comes under the church. There are people who say that this is culturally relative. That is, now hang with me on this, okay? This is one of the toughest sermons I've ever had to put together just because of the complexity of the issue. And, and, and uh, so I'm gonna, it's going to be more demanding than usual. All right, I'm halfway through it. I'm telling you, it is more demanding than usual. 
Some say that this is culturally relative, and I can see where they're coming from. What they argue is this. Given the male-female relationship in the first century, you'd expect Paul to liken the man to Christ and liken the woman to the church, and so there's kind of a hierarchy going there. What the eternal principle is that we should submit to one another, the way this is applied in the first century is, husbands, you're still kind of the boss, all right? And they say that that's culturally relative. I believe that that is true of 1 Peter chapter 3, but I don't think it's true of this passage, okay? And just follow me on this. In 1 Peter chapter 3, where the parallel is between slaves and wives, I believe you're dealing there with something that is intrinsically in the first century that does not have timeless application. The reason is because we instinctively know that slavery is not part of God's ideal. Why should we think the slavery of wives is part of God's ideal? What's also the case is that in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, you have Peter not only saying that wives should submit to their husbands, but that they shouldn't wear gold, they shouldn't wear jewelry, and they shouldn't wear braided hair. And we know that those are cultural things. There's reasons in the first century why Peter would say that, but they don't apply now. The principles apply now, namely the principles of not looking gaudy and not dressing like a prostitute. But the way that that's applied is very different. So 1 Peter 3, I believe, is a cultural thing. I don't think that wives are supposed to see themselves and husbands are supposed to see their wives as being sort of in the category of slaves. I don't believe that at all. Because the ideal is given to us in Genesis chapter 2 and that's not a slave relationship. Ephesians 5, however, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I really believe it's, it's correct. I believe Ephesians 5, which says that the man is the head of the woman, is a timeless truth. Now, temperature's raising again. Hang with me. Here's why I think that. Paul speaks about the man being the head of the woman in, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. And he, he says the reason for it is because the man was created first and the woman came, was created out of the man. And that's basically, we'll see shortly, what head means. People think they know what head means, and I, I don't think they usually do. What's more is on this passage, Paul bases it on the plan of salvation, and that's a timeless thing. But the main reason is this. If we understand what Paul means when he says that the man is the head of the woman, if we understand it, we're going to get to it now in what, what, what follows, you'll see that what Paul is saying here is radically counter-cultural, even of his own culture. What Paul is saying here has got nothing to do with the way men viewed women in his culture. He is continuing his radical streak that he began in verse 21 when he says men and women should submit to one another. He's just as radical, I believe, in this passage. And so you can't say that he's, he's accommodating himself to his culture when, in fact, he's going directly against his culture. Now hang with me on this. Consider three things about this. If we understand this passage, I think we'll see that it has got nothing to do with who obeys who. I don't believe it has anything to do with who gets the tie-breaking vote. It's got nothing to do with power struggles. Paul doesn't think about the issue in those terms. I want you to consider three things. Number one, most people believe that this passage teaches that women are supposed to submit more to men than men are to women, even though Paul says we should submit to one another. They believe that because verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians 5 twice says, repeats, that the woman should submit to the man. And so, in the traditional interpretation, they say this, look it, Paul says we should submit to one another. We got that. But then he says twice that women should submit to the man, but he never again repeats that the man should submit to the woman. So, he's emphasizing the submission of the woman more than the man. Are you following me on this? So clearly, while men in some sense submit to their wives, we don't know how, but in some sense they submit to their wives, 
nevertheless, it's the wife who has to do the obeying. Hear me on this. In the original Greek, and you can check it out, go to any concordance, the word submit is not used of the wife submitting to the husband after verse 21 when Paul says that the husband and the wife should submit to one another. It's not in the original Greek. In the original, it's supplied by translators because they believe it's implied. And I also believe it's implied. Paul doesn't use a verb. What he says is this. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, you do it as a relationship, as, Christ, as the church is related to Christ, so also you should relate to your husbands that way. And that's how you submit. Okay, that's the implication. Husbands, you do it by loving your wife as Christ loved the church. That's how you submit. But my point here is this, and it's very important, but it's a hard one to make, is that the, the submission part of it is no more emphasized of women than it is of men. It's emphasized of both. But Paul doesn't reiterate it more of the woman than, 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 than he does of the man. Submission is both of our jobs. Now, we do it in different ways, and we'll talk about the, what those differences are. But it's not the case that Paul is teaching here that women should obey their husbands more than husbands should obey their, their wives. Both are to obey one another. A second point is this. Throughout the New Testament, you'll find that the whole model of headship, what it is to be a head, what it is to be a leader, has got nothing but nothing to do with being a boss. This is so crucial. Being a boss has everything to do with how the world thinks about authority. But it's got nothing to do with the way authority is won in the kingdom of God. I don't have time to turn to the passage here, but I'm just going to give it to you. Look it up when you get home. A very important passage. It's re repeated in all the Gospels. It's in Matthew chapter 20, starting with verses 16, going through verses 28. Here what happens in, in a nutshell is this. The sons of Zebedee come to Jesus and they say, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and we want to sit on your left hand when we get to in the kingdom. Will you, will you let us do that? And what they're saying there is this. Jesus, we know that you're going to be in charge, but can we be second and third in command? We're, you know, we're interested in being bosses. We like power. And Jesus said, are you able to drink of the cup that I drink with? And what he's referring to there, he just taught it earlier in this passage, is his death. He's going to drink of the cup of God's will, which is going to be his death. He says, are you able to drink of this cup? Are you able to lay down your life for others? They don't have a clue what he's talking about. And they say, sure, sure. So Jesus says, well, maybe, but it's not mine to give anyways. My Father who sees the heart will see whether you have a servant spirit or not. And then he does this. The other disciples get mad at the sons of Zebedee, trying to brown-nose Jesus, trying to get in there ahead of time, aren't you? Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to be first. They're going to be second. And they start a little power struggle there. And Jesus stops him, and he says this, and starting in verse 24, read it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 24. He says, the pagans, the Gentiles, their rulers lord over them, and their spiritual authorities boss them around, but it must not be among you. It must not be so among you. Among you, let the one who wants to lead, this is what Jesus says, let him become a slave. And the one who wants to be exalted, let him humble himself, because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And what we got to get out of that is this. To be a leader, whether we're talking about a church leader or whether we're talking about a family leader, in New Testament terms, it's not about having a big voice. It's not about knowing how to rage. It's not about knowing how to boss someone around. It's not about knowing how to rule somebody or tyrannize somebody. It's about knowing how to serve, how to humble yourself, how to submit yourself, how to come underneath somebody. That's what leadership's all about. 
And they maybe will see your heart of service and see the gift that you have in serving, and they'll naturally follow you. But it's a natural thing. It's not a demanded thing. Any pastor, any pastor who has to say, you have to obey me because I'm your pastor, thereby reveals the fact that he does not have any pastoral authority. Because if he had it, he wouldn't have to say it. If he says it, he doesn't have it. It's a natural kind of thing. If you buy into what's being said, if you see a servant's heart, then you follow. So it is in the family relationship. The world defines authority as power. Christ defines authority as submission. The world defines rulership and headship as being boss. Christ defines it as coming underneath. And any view of being the head of a woman or being the head of a family or being the pastor of a church that thinks it's about authority is a pagan view of authority. Any view that defines headship as having a tiebreaker vote is paganism. Any view of authority that sees it as being able to get your way, to have other people have to serve your way, that is, comes straight out of paganism. It's not a gospel definition of headship. You want to be head of your wife. And I believe that there is something here that is timeless. What that means more than anything else is coming underneath your wife and deferring to her and lifting her up and supporting her. Now, the third thing I want to bring out about this passage is this, and it confirms the whole thing. What does it mean to be the head of somebody? Paul obviously doesn't mean a literal head. The word there is kephale. He doesn't mean a literal head. I mean, obviously, man's like, you know, like he's going to ride on the shoulders or something. It's not a literal thing. It's a figurative thing. Follow me on this. People, when they read this passage, many people, they instinctively read it in the light of Genesis 3.16. They say, oh, okay, the man is the head of the woman. Genesis 3.16 says, they think God told us that man is supposed to rule the woman, therefore to be a head means to be the ruler. I believe just the opposite is happening here, folks. Genesis 3.16 is what Ephesians 5 is moving away from. Because it's giving us the ideal. Genesis 3.16 gives us the... This is not what we should be aspiring towards. This is what we should be working out of. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us the ideal. Now the word kephale does not mean ruler. The, lit the meaning of it when it's used figuratively means source. Now follow me on this. There's a lot of information here. You're going to have to buy the tape. Source. I, if you're a married couple and you're struggling with this, I, I'd encourage you to get it. I don't, I don't normally, no, have, I don't think I've ever tried to self-sell my taste before. But in this one, I know that I'm, I, I'm just giving way too much information here. So if you're interested in it, get it. But the word kephale means source. In, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that the man is the head of the woman, like God is the head of Christ. And then he says in, in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 11, for the woman was made out of the man. Literally, the man was the source of the woman. And what Paul's getting at here is not that, oh, he's the boss of her, but that there's a difference in origin. There is, I believe, a difference of distinction and in general, a difference of role. Because of the different ways that we were created, we're wired differently. But it means source. It doesn't mean ruler. Now get this, this is a good one. There is another word in Greek that means ruler. In fact, it literally means ruler of the house. Oikodespates. Oiko is the word for house. Despotes, we get the word despot from it, means to rule or to rule. Oiko despotes. It's used, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, when the Lord says that he is the oiko despotes of the church. He is the ruler of the church. 
But now get this. Oh, this word was the standard word used for men, for males, for husbands, for fathers throughout the Roman world. Oiko despotes, ruler of the house, master of the household, the one who wears the pants, the boss. It is never, not once, used in the Bible to describe the Christian man in the household. When the Bible talks about the Christian man, it says, kephale, source. So it comes down to mean this. Paul is saying, husbands and wives, submit yourselves to one another. Husbands, you who have so far thought you were the oikodespates, no, I want you to be the kephale. You are the source. And you want to know what source means? Let's look at Jesus Christ. Husbands, you be the source for your marriage the way Christ is the source to the church. In other words, and he spells it out in clear-cut terms, as Christ died for the church, you die for the marriage. As Christ gave himself for the church, you give yourself to this marriage. As Christ loved the church in order to make the church holy and blameless and spotless. He didn't do it because he found worth there. He did it to create worth there. So also husbands, without any consideration for how well you think your wife is or is not measuring up to your expectations, without any consideration for whether she appreciates you enough or not, without any consideration for whether she's even being very nice to you right now or not, you are to die for her. You're to lay down your life for her. You're to come underneath her. You're to be the source of her lovability when she isn't particularly lovable in your eyes. You're to be the source of her encouragement when she's depressed. You're to be the source of her peace when she's feeling stressed out. You're to be the source of her, the source of her help when she's feeling like her workload is, 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 is too high. You want to be the head of a household, then die for your wife without any consideration for whether you think she deserves it or not. That's what it is to be the head of the household, to come underneath her in that way. Now wives, you do the exact same thing to your husbands. And don't wait for him to do it. Because we're supposed to hypotasso, to come underneath one another. But if I'm reading this correctly, and I think I am, Paul is saying that when neither couple wants to do it, husbands, you got to bite the bullet. But what headship means to me is this. When I'm having a fight with my wife, happened about eight years ago, I think, Okay, I lie a little bit. You know how that is? You get so mad. You, ever get so, you get so mad, you feel like, I hate them. <laughs> Why never marry them? <laughs> the last thing I'm going to do is say I'm sorry. It's her fault, all her fault. My life was happy before I married her. You know how you get in that pity mode? You want to have a tie-breaking vote? This is the tie that you got to break. When the relationship's going downhill, husbands, and I think this is just a good working model. Husbands, you take it upon yourself as a responsibility to be the one who's got to die. Swallow your pride, humble yourself, die for the relationship. Maybe you have every right in the world not to do that. Maybe it's entirely her fault. Husbands, you want to be the head of the household? This is what it means. You die for her when she is not particularly worthy. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, uh, Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, by very nature God, didn't grasp after equality with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the nature of a, ser of a, of a servant, and he became obedient God becomes obedient in Jesus Christ and he lays down his life. For who? For the church. 
If God did that, and Paul says that we are to have that kind of mind, we are never, but never in a position to say, I have a right not to say I'm sorry. I have a right to hold out. I have a right to punish her for two weeks by never talking to her. You don't have that right. Now, women, you don't have the right either. We don't have any rights. But what Paul is saying here is that there is a difference in the way people are wired. Generally speaking, if this doesn't fit in the fallen world, you've got to go with what works. But generally speaking, if I'm reading it right, husbands, you have got to bite the bullet on this. And the bottom line here, and I close with this, is this. The headship of the man in a, in a marriage means, I believe, exactly opposite of what many Christians have taken it to mean. I get to have my way. If I say we're going to move, we're going to move. If I say we're going to sell the house, we're going to sell the house. If I want this car, I get this car because I'm the head. If this verse means anything, it means exactly the opposite. In a tie-breaking situation, the one who should defer out of Christ-likeness is the man. To submit yourself and humble yourself, that is genuine authority. And in whatever areas you're gifted in to lead, you know what? You're going to be leading. You're going to be leading because the wife will see that See, there's, I don't think there's a woman in this world that doesn't like what I just said. And it's just so sorry that this, this teaching has been used in such a way that women have been beat up by it. Even the word head. I bet, I bet there's 40 women in this auditorium right now who even to say the man is the head of the woman, they kind of flinch. It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we ought to translate the word source because in, in truth it's a beautiful relationship. Father, You've given a wonderful design, I believe, to the man and woman relationship. And there are forces abroad today that are, on the one hand, trying to make it a godly thing for this relationship to be abused and to make bosses out of those who ought to be Christ-like, submitting, crucified partners. There's also forces in this world that are trying to get rid of all gender distinctions and to, and to say that there's no, even no such thing as gender. Lord, I pray for protection for every marriage and every future marriage and every past marriage, Lord. The protection of people who have been in past marriages, Lord God, who have, who have been violated by that. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be ministering healing to us. Lord, that we could become, in our marriages, little prototypes of the Holy Trinity, modeling forth, Lord God, who you are in the way that we submit to one another and love one another in purity and equality and devotion and embracing one another. In your name we pray. Amen.